Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober, exploring lifestyles in the world of real food. My program talks all about the best real food products and the places where you can find them. But another way to get real food is to grow it yourself. Home gardening has been on the rise for the past decade, and with current shelter-at-home orders due to the pandemic, even more people have turned to gardening this past year to make best of their time. It's not only adults who are learning more about gardening, but our children, too. From learning gardening at school to helping their parents with their gardens, kids have found many benefits of knowing where their food comes from. Here to talk with me about children and gardening is Shannon Brescher Shea, author of the book Growing Sustainable Together, Practical Resources for Raising Kind, Engaged, Resilient Children. Shannon, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Glad you were able to talk to us. You have a lot of good things to discuss. As I explained, you're author of Growing Sustainable Together. What inspired you to write this book? So I've been an environmentalist since I was in about third grade. I went to visit the Homosassa Springs State Park in Florida, which is a manatee and refuge for several other kinds of animals, but specifically manatees. And I just fell in love with manatees. And on the same day, I found out they were endangered. And so I went back home and I convinced my third grade class to adopt a manatee. And that was the start of my environmental activism. And it kind of waned and waxed over the years. But it's always been a really big part of my life. And so when I became a parent, I knew that being an environmentalist wasn't something that was going to go away. As parents, so many of us give up so much of who we are and what we do, but this was something that was inherently part of me. And so I wanted to look at ways to incorporate that in and be able to adapt to being a new mom and still do environmental activities. And so I started blogging about parenting, actually, when my older son was born. He's seven now. And over time, realized that other people were really interested in these things, too. And I had a lot of both green guilt and mom guilt. The green guilt being like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not being sustainable enough. I'm throwing things away, that sort of thing. And the mom guilt being, I'm not spending enough time with my kids. And what if I'm spending too much time doing these environmental things? And one day I was reading a different parenting book, which is actually also quite good, called There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, about bringing kids outside. And I had a light bulb moment where I realized that the green guilt and the mom guilt Neither of them needed to exist, that living in sustainable ways, environmentally sustainable ways, was really good and important for our kids as well, not just for their quote-unquote future, but for what we're teaching them now and tomorrow and the next day, that integrating it into our parenting itself helps us be better parents and helps us pass on really invaluable skills and values to our children, such as kindness and responsibility and independence. And I realized other people would want to hear that message too. Similar things with me, because I was also interested in the environment at an early age. For me, it was sixth grade. So yeah, you were a little before ahead of me Mm -hmm. going back to third grade. Yeah, it sort of, it went on and off, but certainly as I got older. And also, I think I realized was how there were a lot of different aspects of being environmental, stuff that certainly the 12-year-old me Mm -hmm 
didn't know about. So what are the different subjects that you discuss in your book? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to be environmental. And I think a lot of people think of environmentalism as an individual act that we choose to do, whether you buy the organic food or not, or the stuff that comes in processed in plastic or not. And as it turns out, so sustainability as a concept means to be able to do something over time for a long period of time, pretty much indefinitely, without causing a problem and without having it be a healthy run of things. So environmental sustainability means we can use environmental resources for a long time without running out or without causing pollution. But there's also this aspect of sort of personal sustainability and like being able to do these things without burning out and considering the systems that they're within and things like that. And I address all those different things in my book. So we talk about food, but then we also talk about the systems that we're embedded in. We talk about sustainable transportation, biking, walking, public transit, and how those are embedded in larger systems and thinking, okay, maybe you don't have access to a bus or it's too unsafe to bike or walk, but why is that with our kids? Then there's one on waste, which is what I think most people think of, waste and energy conservation. That's kind of the household sustainability, as they call it. There's anti-materialism because so often sustainability is sold to us as something you need to go buy more in different things. And so often it's about what we choose not to buy. Um, how do we value people over things? There's one on outdoors volunteering, which is things like beach cleanups and planting trees and gardens. And then there's one on environmental activism. Okay, we've talked about those systems. We've thought about those systems and how they affect things. Make political change, whether at the local, the state, the national, or the global level. And then the very last chapter kind of draws all those into categories and is how do we talk to our kids about these difficult concepts, especially climate change, which so many adults are sort of personally afraid to tackle and really think about in depth. How can we do it without overly scaring our kids and without causing undue anxiety, but instead empowering? All important topics, as this shows the appropriate omnivore, obviously people know about how we focus on the connection of food and the environment, but all ones that I'm interested in and inside the show, I'm very involved, certainly a lot with energy and waste. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm interested in about all of those. Obviously, it's the show, the focus is food. Mm -hmm. And that was actually the second chapter of your book, which I think says something. So do you see food as one of the most important aspects of sustainability? I think it is because everybody has to eat. We don't all need to go buy sustainable furniture or something like that, but everybody has to eat. And <laughs> right. It's something that little kids especially connect with. I think some of the bigger issues can get my four-year-old, talking to him about even something like plastic waste, it's going to be a little confusing. But food... You eat food. You make food. We can grow food. We can buy. We can go to the farmer's market and talk to the person who grew some other food or go and pick up some of the farm box every week from the people who grew that food. So it's a very concrete thing. It's something everybody has to deal with. It's something we have to make daily decisions about. Once you buy a new water, you decide if it's energy efficient or not. You don't have to think about it for hopefully another 10 years or so. Whereas you go grocery shopping every week. You choose what to make for dinner every day. So I think it's a really good in for people who may not have thought about or also who are kind of intimidated by the food aspect of it. I think a lot of our society has kind of made food out as being this difficult thing that you have to be very complicated about and so hard to be sustainable. There's all these options. And to me, I sort of want to be like, okay, you don't have to grow all your own food. Just thinking about the effort it needs to grow the food and introducing your kids to like, how hard is it even just to keep a basil plate alive? Because sometimes it is. Helps them think about for the people who grew the food. How much are they getting paid? 
How are they growing? Are they using pesticides and herbicides that are damaging the soil and damaging the water and potentially poisoning the people taking this? And so it starts those conversations and it helps us think through that bigger picture of how we're all connected. That's the other thing. Food connects us to everyone. You can't eat independently. Nobody grows all of their own food. So I think it's a really good in talking sustainability, especially with children. I think so too. And you make a good point that it is one of the easier elements, such as say something like energy, where one, a lot of it can be expensive, solar panels, Teslas, and even then the less expensive ways, things like public transportation, walking or biking, it's more time consuming, takes longer to get there. But I think this can be something which is quick and easy way to mm-hmm. help be more sustainable. Yeah. And like, it's a good way to start those conversations as well. It is, right. Because like you said, everyone has food. You do it three times a day. And I talked to my editor about reorganizing and we both were like, no, that'd be the first chapter. Plus, I feel like kids are the most likely to be interested in gardening compared to some of the other things mm-hmm. because most kids like playing in the dirt. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. And as you talked about how you have this interest in the environment at a young age, did you grow up with gardening? Mm-hmm. My mom always kept a flower garden, and she tried growing food a couple times. We were never super into it, but I always loved playing in the dirt. I would create sort of these whole imaginative things out of the weeds I gathered, and I was making some potion and the rare plant that was the one weed in the corner of our yard, (laughs) being able to find it. So even though I wasn't growing real things, I was very much a fan of being outside and physically feeling the dirt in my fingers and digging. Think about what this could be. And you need so much of that, both imagination and patience, when you actually do garden, especially with kids, because that's one of the real things that teaches them, is it teaches them that things will take their own time. You can't make a seed growing any faster than it's going to grow. And sometimes bugs are going to eat your plants, and sometimes deer are going to eat your plants. And you learn this resilience and this lack of instant gratification. I think it was really helping learn some patience that they might not have otherwise. And it's funny, I see my younger son loves to garden, but he also loves doing these potions and things like that. And I think even if your kid isn't hands-on gardening with you, that just being outside and seeing you garden and seeing what can result from it itself builds that interest and that investment, even if they don't necessarily want to sit down and read with you. You're talking a little bit about what your younger kid likes, and are there other things too that both of your kids like about gardening? My younger son in preschool, I think it was two years ago now, had to say what he liked the most about his mom. And he said that he lets me help. And I was like, wait, what? That's what you are supposed to tell me? But I think he understood that it was really important to me. And the idea that I let him help with something that was important to me was very empowering to him. Some kids also really get into sort of what's called the heavy work aspect of gardening. My older son is very energetic and kind of seeks out full body sorts of things. He loves tag and wrestling and stuff like that. And we were putting in a new fence because the deer keep jumping our old fence. And he really loved helping my husband put in the things for the new poles and being able to really smack them and hold on to them. And the weight of that was really helpful for him. So for some kids, dragging around the wheelbarrow or shoveling or those really sort of full body things are very helpful for them, too. And what ways do you think your kids have benefited by doing gardening? Yeah, like I said, I think it's really built their patience, their understanding of seasonality. No, you have to wait for the tomatoes to be done. Don't eat the green ones. We have to wait. We have to wait. It's helped them understand so much about our natural system and that everything is connected together. We talk about how weeds actually serve a really important purpose in nature and niches and how the ones after there's a fire or in an area there's been a 
landslide that's washed away, things down to the stone, the weeds are the things that are the plant and they're the ones that first break things up. They're the ones that make things possible for the new other plants to come in. And that even though we don't want them in our garden, they do have an important purpose. It's this idea that it's not us against nature. It's us working with nature and using nature's rules as best we can and nature's systems as best we can to do things that benefit us. And so I garden in a way that's called permaculture, which is really about using those processes and systems for our benefit rather than trying to fight against them. And so I think they've learned a lot from not just how nature works, but also how do you cooperate with people in the real world and how do you approach things in the real world? That is to be a competition. It's collaborative. It's cooperative. Yes. Permaculture is very much what we promote on this program as part of the greater I'd say concept of regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. And do you think by having your children and and children in general learn about permaculture that this gives them a greater understanding of the whole issue of climate change? Well, I think there's sort of a couple important aspects with that. Yeah, absolutely. The first, as I said, is this idea that it can't be a competition. We're not going to fight nature. Nature will win. That's what I tell them. Like, that's just a fact of life. And if you fight nature and climate change, if you keep producing pollution and then try to come up with these increasing elaborate technical schemes to deal with it, that's a losing proposition. (laughs) Nothing good is going to happen from that. I think all permaculture, we talk about how a lot of permaculture is based on much older practices of people who don't always get credit for it. For example, the Fuscatoe tribe, Maryland recently recognized, but they were one of the tribes that really established the idea of the three sisters crop. And so I was able to say, oh, yeah, we use the three sisters crops today, corn, beans, and squash. And they work together. And the corn takes up a lot of nitrogen, but the beans release the nitrogen from the soil, and they're able to wind up the corn. And then the squash create ground cover so that you don't get weeds. And people learn that from the Piscataway Native Americans. And they're the ones who came up with that. So I think not just the ideas or the concept, but also the history behind them. Can children, here are the people who came up with these things who were more sustainable. And then they're down the line. They're also the people who were the least responsible for it and are getting the most punished for other people's actions. The Black people, American people, Hispanic people are the ones who are hurt the most by climate change, typically, and most affected. And so that can kind of open up that conversation about these are the folks who often are living the most sustainably but are hurt the most by it. And that's something to keep in mind with climate change. One of the things in the book I talk about is there's a long-running idea of talking polar bears on ice floes. And my message is, no, we have to talk about people in the context because if we don't, we're doing them such a tremendous disservice and really ignoring their pain and ignoring their oppression and the systems that have contributed both to their oppression and to climate change at the same time. And so talking to kids when you talk about climate change, talking not just about our individual actions, but the systems and the historical aspects behind them. And I think permaculture ties a lot of that together. There's a wonderful place called Soulfire Farm up in upstate New York, which is actually near where I'm from originally, that tells kids when they arrive where to end systemic racism and agriculture. And they do a lot of that work. And I love their education course. I spoke to Soulfire Farms educational coordinator for my book and a lot of what I learned on food and the systems we're in that appears in my chapter on food is from talking to them. Excellent. And I thought that was one of the most interesting parts in your book was about the dealing with the issue of racism and kids learning about gardening and where the food comes from, because mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah. I was in a group called Ecolocity, which was a transition towns group. I don't know if you've ever heard of transition towns movement. Oh, I'm very familiar with them. Yes. Yeah. In Washington, D.C. And we sort of saw a lot of the problems 
or challenges perhaps of trying to implement a transition town structure in Washington, D.C., but we also in sort of the not the failure of the transition towns movement, but we saw the gaps in it in terms of intersectionality and in terms of addressing social justice issues. And so I learned so much about from Ecolocity, from the interweaving of transition towns and permaculture and sort of this intersectional point of view. And then that's what made me want to go find out about Fire Farm and talk to them about the more kid-oriented part of that. And another aspect, I think, with gardening and knowing where your food comes from is learning about health. Do you see that as a thing that kids can also learn by doing this? Oh, absolutely. There's actually a lot of really great academic studies on the fact that kids are more willing to try fruits and vegetables if they help grow them. And I talk about visiting the Washington Youth Garden, which is in not exactly downtown Washington, D.C. It's actually on the edge, but is in actual the city of Washington, D.C. within the National Arboretum. And these kids were eating salad. Good luck trying to get kids to eat salad normally. But they had picked it. They had smelled it. It was super fresh. And they had helped make the salad. And that was really empowering to them. And I know my kids prefer eating things straight out of the garden, if possible. Like the moment you pick it and you put it in the fridge, it becomes less interesting. (laughs) But they're just standing there eating off the plant. My older son likes fresh peppers and tomatoes. My younger son, for some reason, likes to eat mint straight off of the plant. I don't get it, but okay, fine. Don't eat too much of it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so from that point of view, just getting them to eat more produce is huge. And so much of the time, the behavior is because the kid doesn't want to try it in the first place. And then once they do, they like it. And if you can help reduce that hesitancy, it helps a lot. Of course, the fresher and the closer to picking that you eat food, both the better it tastes and the healthier it is for you. A lot of food these days is not grown in soil that has a lot of nutrients it's had the nutrients stripped out of it so if you grow your own and you build your soil up like we do by adding a lot of compost and leaves and straw to it you're probably going to have healthier more nutritious produce too which is always a bonus and being outside itself is actually huge for kids health both mental and physical there's incredible amount of research about the value of being outside for mental health, especially right now with COVID, when so many are they're stuck not just inside, but in the same place inside all the time, where you're not going to school and to work and to all these places, everything is at home. So the more you can get your kids outside, the more sensory input they have, and not in a stressful way, the way that like a video game or, or television would be, the more on the physical side, bacteria they get exposed to, good bacteria that can help build up their immune system. And just emotionally, it's calming. And especially for kids who struggle with attention issues and emotional issues, there's really great proof that kids with ADHD actually are able to focus much better on things they would have had difficulty focusing on otherwise after being outside. And I know we see this in my older son, who's very emotionally intense, very energetic. He just gets calmer when he's outside. There's almost an immediate effect. And then the more he's outside the more you can see the feeling of overwhelm reduce and go down. Yes, and I thought that was an interesting part in your book as you're talking about how kids are more likely to eat the food if they grew it themselves. And I remember there was a part of kids in some school that were willing to at least try some of these vegetables even if in the end they didn't end up liking them. Yeah, exactly. And that's empowering too, to try something and say, I don't like this, but I'm going to try something else in the future. The kids knowing that giving them the choice of what they want to eat or not 
and having many choices to be able to choose from. Not you have to eat this carrot. And one way you could do that is involve kids from the beginning in planning your garden. My kids love sitting with me and flipping through the garden catalog. We get the Southern Exposure the Exchange catalog, which has adorable gnomes on the cover every season, so that helps. And it's really cute illustrations and interesting photos, and it's not just like a list of plants. But they get excited about picking out what we're going to grow this year. And this year we grew carrots for the first time. I mean, we actually got carrots. They were tiny, ridiculous, twisted carrots, but we got carrots, and that was very exciting. And with your kids, are there any vegetables that they help grow but they just in the end didn't like my younger son does not like tomatoes raw tomatoes he likes them if they're cooked and you know in sauce or whatever but he does not like raw tomatoes that's like one hands down which my older son loves that's the main one we really try to grow things that we know we're going to eat because why are we going to grow them otherwise one thing that we got we got this mystery squash that i think had planted itself from our compost (laughs) when we put the compost in the garden and it was like this weird, bumpy, lumpy thing, and we tried to cook it just to see how it was, and it was the worst thing I've ever eaten. It tasted like metal. You put one bite in your mouth, you're like, no, this is not fit for consumption. You will probably get sick eating. <laughs> so that was the one. Not fail, because we didn't plant it on purpose, but they made cool gourds, though. I mean, even some adults who say they don't like tomatoes, which I guess I don't get. <laughs> tomatoes are great. Yeah. How can you not like that? Yeah, I know a lot of people, cherry tomatoes, it's the feeling of them squishing in your mouth. My mother-in-law doesn't like that either. So We always grow cherry tomatoes because we have trouble growing big tomatoes. We always get either fungus or bugs on big tomatoes. Cherry tomatoes are great, too. I will say, though, yes, tomatoes do taste quite good when they're cooked, roasted tomatoes. And, yeah, I like to roast cherry tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Those are the best for roasting. I think, actually, Mm -hmm. I like to roast the heirloom cherry tomatoes. Oh, yeah. Does Mm -hmm. your son, though, like products with tomato paste in it, like ketchup? and pasta sauce oh yeah, yeah it's, that's always an interesting thing oh, yeah. i'll meet people who say they don't like tomatoes but i guess they like tomato paste because they like all these products that that's what they use is the tomato paste the, like i said the pasta sauce and ketchup well for a lot of people it's not the taste it's the texture mm, so okay. and it's a completely different texture when that is true sauce. yeah that's why some will even say they like salsa which is not tomato paste but it does have somewhat of a different texture exactly yeah so finding for your kids how they like them cooked and what texture my husband kind of assumed that the kids would like when we got carrots from the farm box which we got so many carrots from the farm box that they would like them better cooked and so we kept cooking them because that's how we like them and with butter i mean it goes wrong there and he and i would eat them and the kids would poke at them and not eat them but whenever i would cut up carrot sticks and dip them in ranch dressing i mean yeah it's in ranch dressing but still they would steal them from me so we realized hey they don't really like cooked carrots but they like raw ones who knew right so a lot of times it's just a matter of finding again it's very empowering to figure out well what do you like how do you like them not to sort of write it off and be like, oh, well, I don't like vegetables. Okay, well, which ones? How are you making them? You know? Yeah, when someone says, I don't like this vegetable, you just have to say, well, you haven't had it the right way. <laughs> well, yeah. There are some, I will never like asparagus. We will never, ever plant asparagus because I can't stand it. Same with me, actually. That's interesting that you mentioned that. I have that thing that makes it taste like soap. You know, that gene that makes it taste like soap. So my mom loves it. Oh, well, maybe I have that too because... For me, what I found is going back to the idea of some vegetables are good cooked, some taste better when they're not cooked. Two vegetables I think of that I never liked raw, and I still really don't like raw, are broccoli and cauliflower. Oh, yeah. But they are amazing when you roast them. Yeah. So I thought with asparagus, oh, that could be the same way. Let's try roasting asparagus. But nope, I just still don't like it. Yep. (laughs) So... 
We talk a lot about kids gardening, and mm-hmm. they can do this at home, and then some schools now have gardens. Now, for those who are unable to garden at home or at school, what are some alternatives? Right now, it's a little hard, but there are an increasing number of community gardens available. Many cities do have them. Often, there's a long waiting list, unfortunately, because they're very popular. But it's worth checking out if you live in a urban area, if you have a community garden available. A lot of times, just even if you have a small little spot, growing things in pot. My parents live in a townhouse and have a very small back patio area. But my mom grew more tomatoes than I did this year because we gave her some and some other neighbors grew her some. And she grew them in pot. And the deer ate all of our tomatoes. <laughs> which we should have had a lot more. And she grew tomatoes in pots and peppers in pots, loads of basil and things like that. So if you have even a small black patio, you can probably grow some stuff in pots. If you don't have any outdoor space whatsoever, you can sometimes grow some herbs and spices and things like that in pots as well, small ones. Mint is really great to grow in pots, uh, even if you have space outdoors because mint spreads like a weed. It's extremely aggressive. I'm always weeding it back from my strawberries, which themselves are pretty aggressive. So that gives you an idea of how aggressive mint is. Basil is good to grow in pots as well, even small pots. And so if you have some sunshine and you water your plants regularly, you can even grow some things inside. And you get the same experience of starting things from seed and watching them grow and things like that with kids. And you're going to get a lot more out of having a somewhat larger garden, although you don't need a lot. You don't want to be overwhelmed. But even just growing stuff in a pot, you can learn about plants and you can learn that patience and you can think about and have those conversations about where does our food come from. Do you also think that doing things such as buying from a farmer's market helps people be more in touch with where the food comes from? Yeah, I think so, because they see actual people grow these things. It doesn't just magically appear on the grocery store shelf. You can talk to them about how they grew it. And there's a while that the one farmer that we always went to We've sort of watched their daughter grow up, and she was probably 13 or 14, and now she's, I think, I don't know if she's even still at their farm stand anymore. She might have graduated college at this point, and she recognized us, and she knew our kids, and you build those relationships with people. You don't have to be, like, best friends with them or anything, but you know that they are people, and you care about what their working conditions are and things like that. And then even if you don't buy everything from the farmers market, you start thinking about everything else too. And it helps you think about everything else. We say grace every night at dinner. And one of the things in that is thank you for the hands that made this food. And when we say that, we talk about not just daddy who cooked dinner, but also the people who grew the cranberries in the cranberry sauce or the people who raised the meat that we have from the farm down in Virginia that is run by an indigenous guy and stuff like that. So Any way that you can connect with the people who grow the food is really good. How much of the food do you grow yourselves versus buying at farmer's markets or other places? Oh, goodness, not very much. (laughs) This year was really bad because the deer were super aggressive. For years, they had stayed out because it was a little hard for them to jump in and then get out. Except the last couple of years, they've gotten very bold and they don't give a crap. And so we had our tomatoes absolutely decimated, our squash decimated. We grew a lot of peppers. (laughs) I think we grew all the peppers we ate. We didn't buy any peppers this year. We grew a ton of basil, so we made pesto and things like that. But when we got the farm box, because we got the farm box this year through community-supported agriculture, where you pay the beginning of the year and then you get a box of food every week. 
we started in the spring and went through to last week, and almost all of our fruits and vegetables were from that. There might have been a couple things that were like out of season, especially fruit, because fruit's really hard to grow in the D.C. region because it's so wet. It ends up getting, especially organic, it gets a lot of mold and bugs. So there was some fruit rebuff, but I think all of the vegetables were from the farm box. And then during the winter, we try to buy stuff from the farmer's market, but you have a lot of potatoes <laughs> if you only buy farmer's market and in January in Washington, D.C. during the winter. One thing that has helped is during COVID, we switched to buying almost, not completely, but much of the time from our local natural foods slash, like it's not just natural foods, but they're a regular grocery store too. And they work really hard to source from local farmers. So we are able to get more local things from them too, which we wouldn't have gotten going to the regular grocery store. Yes, CSAs were another thing I know you talked about in your book about how that's a way that you can connect with where your food's grown from if you're unable to have a garden in yourself Mm -hmm. and you're talking Mm -hmm. about buying from a local grocery store do you think that some of these now we have a lot of national natural food stores such as whole foods and other ones do you think that even those can help people in some way learn more about where the food comes from i don't like whole foods (laughs) people will not like me very much for saying that. It's mainly because their CEO has specifically said that he modeled their practices off of Walmart and with a goal to put other small natural food stores out of business. So you sort of have to take that with a grain of salt. I also know that because so many small natural food stores and or local grocery stores have gone out of business, sometimes Whole Foods is what you got. So I think any trip to the grocery store, you can use to start that conversation. You can ask, where did this come from? And you can look at where it came from and you can say, okay, is that a decision? What company grew this? There's some organic companies that the United Farm Workers have said they treat their people terribly and they underpay them and you should boycott them. And so just because it's organic doesn't mean it's guaranteed that the people were treated well. And so I think any grocery store you can go to, you can start these conversations. It's just easier if there's actual people to talk to. And Whole Foods does have some local things. You sort of have to cast a bit of a skeptical eye. I think sometimes their definition of local is extremely broad. I think it's within 300 miles, if I remember correctly, instead of 100 miles, which starts to get a little like, okay, who are you including here then? So as with all marketing, you have to have a skeptical eye towards it and think about, is this giving me good information? Is this information accurate? And then sort of think through it critically. And Honestly, that's something that environmental, I I talked about this in the chapter on anti-materialism. That's an incredibly valuable skill that we can teach kids in terms of anti-materialism is being skeptical towards marketing and thinking about, is this commercial selling me something I don't actually want? Is it giving me good information? Is it giving me information that's relevant to me? Or is it trying to sell me on something that doesn't actually matter to me? And we can apply that to food as well. Yes, I like that you bring up the issue of some of these foods that are sold in the natural food stores. They have terrible working conditions. The one that comes to mind is Driscoll's that made the berries. And after I hear that, when I'm, if I don't get my berries from a farmer's market, whenever I'm in one of these stores, I try to look and say, okay, what other brands do they have besides Driscoll's there? If they have something like Nature's Partners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously, Whole Foods is the largest of these national natural grocers but there are other ones too i think maybe sprouts is the second biggest so my question to you is do you think it's possible to be a national natural food chain and be connected with where our food comes from or is this something that should be more focused on local small businesses 
Oh, that is a hard question. I don't know, honestly. There are a couple of national businesses that I genuinely like. I don't know of any really in the... I guess the one that I personally like the most, but this is probably just me being prejudiced because I like ice cream, is Ben & Jerry's. (laughs) But they're owned by Unilever, right? So, like, you know when you buy Ben & Jerry's, you're giving money to Unilever. So there's no perfect answer there, I feel like. Even on the local level, there's local stores that pay their employees badly or don't take care of them. There's a saying that there's no ethical consumption under late-stage capitalism. And it's true. You, You can't be assessed about this. You sort of have to make these decisions as they come up and think through the ethics of them as best you can. And then at some point you got to just buy some food. There's no perfect choices. And so you just sort of have to make the best choices that you can with your resources at the moment. And for a lot of people, the best choices that they can may be just being able to buy their family fruits and vegetables at all. If you live in a place that's a food desert, getting any fruits and vegetables is going to be hard and it's better than getting nothing. So a lot of the discussion of sort of ethics and buying and food is pretty privileged. And so making sure not to shame people for the choices that they don't have choices is really important too. And making sure what I tend to focus on more than, okay, what's this individual choice I'm making? How can I make it possible for other people to have more choices and for them to be able to buy ethically if they want to and they're capable of. But if that's not a choice they even have available to them, then it's a moot point for them. So I think it's more important rather than saying, oh, this chain is good or this chain is bad, saying, how can we make this available to everyone? I'm certainly going to look more kindly upon a grocery store that's opening in a neighborhood that has traditionally been redlined or has food desert and they may not make a ton of money to begin with and they're willing to take that risk, then one is not, regardless of how many organic products they stock. In regards to Ben & Jerry's, I think with their purchase of Unilever, somewhat gone down in quality and as a big focus of my blog is about recommending the best products of each, I can actually give you some ice creams that I'd recommend over Ben & Jerry's that are either certified organic or use grass-fed dairy. I like Strauss. I'm not sure if they're available on the East Coast or not, but that's one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know also if Three Twins was ever available. And unfortunately, they've gone out of business. They're trying to sell, I know, the name Mm -hmm. now. But I would say as far as East Coast ones, I like Jenny's ice cream. It's from Ohio, where I'm originally from. So maybe I'm a little biased. But to me, that would be one that I would recommend because I know the creamery that they source their dairy from. And that's a great creamery. So that would be probably one of the one. I actually will probably sometime next year publish an article on the best grass-fed ice creams. Yeah, we have a creamery near us that we can buy stuff from. So oh, okay. There's actually, they sell at our local farmer's market. So if I'm going to go local, I'll probably go with them. We actually went and they have it where you can bottle feed their cows. And my kids really enjoyed that. It's actually where we pick peaches every year. They have a big peach orchard and then they also have cows and have their own creamery. Yes, of course. Also, I think the best alternative actually to getting the healthiest, most sustainable ice cream is homemade ice cream. And they have now these affordable ice cream makers. And I think ones that are better in quality that I think homemade ice cream now can taste much better than it ever has. Yeah, it's kind of my husband actually, when the preschool was open, was teaching cooking classes to little preschool kids, which was hysterical. And the last thing they did was they made homemade ice cream. And sometimes it came out really well, and sometimes it didn't. Oh, certainly. (laughs) I think it depends on how well you know how to use your ice cream maker, how precisely you measure your ingredients. 
because there were a couple times we made it. I'm like, this is really good. And then a couple times you made it. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> well, the kids liked it. Yeah, that's been my experience, too, with these homemade ice cream machines. And another part of knowing where your food comes from, because we talked a lot about produce and fruit but there is also a thing now of backyard chickens and even if you have the acreage backyard cows Mm, have you thought at all about that i've been trying to convince my husband to get backyard chickens and he is not sold (laughs) we only have less than a quarter acre and we're on a corner that has a sidewalk going through it so we would have to really and we've got our neighbor's cat which is very aggressive so we really have to sort of really block stuff off we don't really have property that's not public in some sense, being able to see it publicly. And just in terms of having two young, extremely energetic kids, the amount of extra work. We do actually have neighbors who have backyard chickens. They were front yard chickens. I've seen them in their front yard. And our neighborhood, which is a historically black neighborhood, it was one of the first neighborhoods in Maryland where people who had been formerly enslaved were able to get property that was not, quote unquote, given to them by their former enslavers. And were able to just buy property on their own. And my neighbor, who had been there, her grandfather had lived there, and she'd been there many generations, told me stories about how they grew a lot of their own food and how the neighborhood used to be full of fruit trees and had pigs and chickens and how they were really self-sustaining because they knew they couldn't rely on other people in a lot of ways because of segregation. And so it was kind of hardening to me to see that she was very glad that to see that we had a garden and it's very hardening to me to see my other neighbors also growing their own food and finding ways to be sustainable. Yes, I think all of that, very inspiring. And with more kids learning how to do this, what do you see the future looking like? I really hope that we can find ways to make lawns usable, basically, that either they're actively being played on as play spaces or we have public parks or people are to write food on them and some combination. The idea of lawn as just this aesthetic thing we have to have is really toxic, both literally in the amount of crap that people dump on it to keep these things green and waste of water and sort of toxic from a community point of view. It's all this land that's just used to show off to other people when you could use it to be growing food or as a public play space or to build relationships with people. And so I think hopefully that idea of this suburban neighborhood where everybody drives everywhere, has this giant lawn and hardly ever talks to their neighbors, hopefully will not be the future. And we'll instead have these very, very vibrant urban areas that have community gardens and public parks and meeting spaces and then where there are suburbs that are walkable and bikeable and much denser than the traditional ones and then rural areas in which there's sustainable agriculture and people who maybe can't grow in their own areas but want to can go out and help and collaborate or otherwise support through things like community supported agriculture and then space set aside that's mainly not for any human development that is partly for recreation, but also just partly for wildlife and being able to have that. And so having spaces that are very thoughtfully planned for the sake of benefiting both our natural systems and our human systems in a really just and equitable way is the future I try to work towards. And that's one of my advice for talking to kids about climate change. I think anybody about climate change is we can only be driven by fear for so long. When you drive by fear you get immediate action, but then it dies out very quickly because people get burnt out. 
But if you can build a positive vision to work towards instead of just running away from, that can be longstanding. That can be sustainable. And I think if we can build these positive visions of what do we want our houses to look like? What do we want our neighborhoods to look like? What do we want our cities to look like? What do we want our country to look like? What do we want our globe to look like? That is a much more powerful way to move in the world and to have environmental action and even to drive our own individual action. As the saying goes, grow food, not lawns. Right. You know, exactly. We're just about out of time. But before we go, tell the listeners where they can find your blog and where they can go to purchase your book. Absolutely. My book is called Growing Sustainable Together, Practical Resources for Raising Kind, Engaged, Resilient Children by Shannon Brusher Shy. And it's available pretty much anywhere you buy books. I'm going to put a not like I'm not sponsored or anything, but a plug in for your local bookshop. And a lot of them are working through bookshop.org, which benefits local bookshops. I just bought like $100 worth of Christmas presents from them to benefit my local bookshop, The Story House. But anywhere else you can buy books, it's available. And then my blog is We'll Eat You Up, We Love You So, which is named after the line in Where the Wild Things Are. And I'm available on Facebook, Instagram, under Will H.U. We Love You So, and on Twitter separately because I started my Twitter account a million years ago at Storyteller, S-T-O-R-I-T-E-L-L-E-R. So it's Storyteller, but with an I instead of a Y. And I blog on environmental sustainability, parenting, social justice, and the intersection of all those things. Great. Lots of different sites to check out. Shannon, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. Follow me on social media for information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all of my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can also find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.